Good morning. Uh, we are going to continue in our sermon series in Luke. So if y'all will turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 16 uh, through 22 this morning. Um, yeah, as Jeff mentioned, my wife Becky and I just, I guess this, this is our second Sunday here officially. Um, and we are so grateful for y'all and for kind of the way the um, the meals y'all provided, letting us borrow air mattresses and watching our kids while we paint and helping with paint, and, um, the way as many of y'all have reached out and um, loved us already. Uh, we do actually have an actual mattress now, a real bed, and Wi-Fi, so we, we have all the basics. Um, so we're going to, um, like I mentioned, we're going to continue through our series in Luke. So... Um, Jeff, we're just finishing up. Jeff has, the last three weeks, we've been looking at the temptations of Jesus, where uh, he's in the wilderness, and Satan comes, and he, uh, you know, has the, you know, there's the temptations. That's what we've been looking at. And then Jesus returns from the wilderness, and he begins his ministry. He's growing in popularity. And then uh, he goes home to Nazareth, and that's where we're picking up this morning. It's Jesus' return to Nazareth, and we're going to see what, what, What happens there? So Luke 4, starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? All right, let's pray, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning as we come with, with all of our, um, our baggage, our distractions, our guilt, our sin, Lord, as we know, um, even this morning we have, we have failed to love you, we have failed to love those around us, we have um, sinned, Lord, we pray that you would Come and you speak to us, speak words of, of good news uh, to us this morning through your word. We pray all this in your son's name, amen. If you've ever moved away from home and come back, you know it can be a weird experience. To, if you, you move away, you grow up, you change, and then you come back to where you're from and the people, the people there, maybe they've changed as well, but they still expect you to kind of be that same kid, that same child that you were um, when you were younger. That's where we find Jesus this morning. He has gone away. He's been out preaching um, in, in the area around where he was from. And then he's come back home, back to his hometown, and the people are expecting him to be the same old carpenter's son, right? They, they have these preconceived notions of who he was. And so Jesus comes home, 
comes to Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue. It says, as was his custom. Uh, he, he may even be there with his family. We don't know. You know for all we know, you know, Mary and his brothers and sisters are there with him. You know, it's, it's what you do. It's right. You go back home. You go with your family to church. That's, um, you know, Jesus, that was his, his tradition, his custom, because he knew that was where, um, you know, where God's word was proclaimed. So Jesus goes to church, and it says that he's invited to read from the book of Isaiah and to teach. Everyone here wants to know what the deal is with this hometown hero. Jesus has been out. He's been growing in popularity. Everywhere he goes, crowds follow. And the people of Nazareth want to know what is so great about the carpenter's son. Who is, you know, they know Jesus as the son of Joseph and Mary, right? A poor carpenter who's gone, but then he leaves and he becomes this big, um, this figure in the, the region around them. And so they're curious. They want to know what has made the carpenter's son so popular. So Jesus is invited to read. And he starts reading from Isaiah. And as I say, that's where, the, um, that's where the fun begins. That's where things start to get interesting. So Jesus begins reading from Isaiah. And it's a prophecy that everyone in the room, everyone in the synagogue that morning would have recognized as a prophecy concerning the, the Messiah, the, the, the promised anointed one. That, that the Old Testament uh, foresaw, foreshadowed. So they all would have known that this is a promise of the coming Messiah. And then Jesus does something strange. And I'm going to leave you hanging for a minute, but I promise we're going to come back to it. It's not something that's immediately apparent in the text, but everyone in the room that morning would have known, would have been wondering, okay, why did he do that? And, and so he sits down, which... At that time, when you were a teacher, you would stand up to read the passage, and then you would sit down to teach. And so he, when he sits down, and everyone, has the, their eyes are fixed on him. It says, um, they're waited, so it says that all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're waiting with bated breath, wanting to know what he's going to say. He's done something weird, right? They want to know what the deal is with the carpenter's son. And so they're, they're, they're fixed on him. And he, what does Jesus say? He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying that he himself is the fulfillment of this prophecy. That he himself is the Messiah that is coming. In fact, Jesus is not just the fulfillment of this passage from the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of every passage from the Old Testament. Every promise that God makes in Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, or second, sorry, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Because he, he is the fulfillment. He is the yes of all of God's promises. One of the things that this passage doesn't tell us is whether Jesus chose the passage that he read or whether it was simply assigned to him. So, for instance, this week, I didn't choose to preach from Luke 4. We're going through the book of Luke. This is the passage that was up next. So this is the passage that I'm preaching on. Uh, they did something similar in, the, in synagogues in Jesus' day where they would read through books of the Bible. 
And so we don't know. The passage tells us that the passage does tell us that Jesus was given the scroll of Isaiah. We don't know whether or not he um, he went to a particular passage that he wanted to go to, or whether or not, or whether the um, you know, this was just the next passage in their series, right? This, they, the week before, they read from Isaiah 60, um, and then this week, Jesus read from Isaiah 61. But on one level, it doesn't really matter, because whether or not Jesus had, had read from Isaiah, from Daniel, from Genesis, Joshua, wherever it had been, the effect would have been the same. It still, he still could have sat down and said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. And so while all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ, there are two big promises that I want us to look at this morning. So the big takeaway this morning, if you will, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God ever makes. Um, the, the promise, um, all of the promises in the Old Testament... Even promises in the New Testament are fulfilled in Christ and by Christ. But I want us to kind of unpack that a little bit by looking at two promises in particular. And in one sense, these are the two big promises that God makes to his people. There's the promise of salvation from sin and the promise of a full future restoration and redemption. So let's start with the, the promise of a salvation from sin. Uh, in the passage, we see there's kind of two aspects of this that the passage uh, pulls out. And it, both of them uh, deal... Um, so this promise from salvation from sin takes kind of two forms based on the nature of sin itself. That sin blinds us, and then sin is a slave master that holds us in captivity. And so, first off, we see this promise of salvation from sin takes the form of Jesus giving us sight to see our sin. In this, in the prophecy, in verse nineteen, or sorry, eighteen, Jesus says that he, um, the Spirit, has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Part of what sight to the blind refers to is a spiritual sight that Jesus gives us sight to see our sin. Uh, Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. By nature, we are blind to the presence of sin in our lives. By nature, we um, are much, we're quick to see the sin of others and to ignore our own sin, or to not even see our own sin. But um, what Jesus is saying here is that he gives us sight to see our sin. He gives us spiritual eyes um, to, to, to make us aware of the ways that we fail. This is, so we, this is why Jesus tells us in Matthew to remove the log from your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because our tendency is to see, to, to see other people's sin, right? To focus on where they've failed and to ignore the places where we, we sin, where we fail. I, I prefer contacts, so you might not know that I actually wear glasses because I, yeah, I, I like contacts better than glasses, but I do need 
something to help me see. And for the longest time, through high school, kind of the end of high school, I needed glasses. Like, the board just kept getting fuzzier and fuzzier, but I didn't want them. And so finally, freshman year of college, literally, unless I was sitting in the front row, even in the front row, I had to squint in order to see it. And so finally, I broke down, went to the eye doctor, got glasses, and it was like a whole new world has opened up. You know, I walk out of the dentist. I still remember walking out of the eye doctor for the first time after getting glasses. And the leaves had, tr or the trees had leaves on them. I could see, the, you know, the signs across the street. I didn't know what I couldn't see until I got glasses. And when the, sp when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our sin, it's similar. That we don't know what we're not seeing until we see it. We're, we're blind to our own sin until the Holy Spirit, until Christ um, removes, he gives us sight. He gives sign to we who are blind to our sin. It's, and it, we can go from completely convinced that we're right to completely aware of just how um, wrong we are in a situation in the blink of an eye. And it, all it takes is the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of our heart. And so the takeaway for us this morning is whenever you're in a situation where you are abundantly aware of someone else's sin, that is always a time to stop and think, where might I be at wrong in this situation as well? And that doesn't mean that you ignore someone else's sin. That doesn't mean that you... There, there may be situations where you're not, but if you're completely convinced that you're completely in the right, that is always a warning sign that you need to stop, ask the Holy Spirit, say, Lord, show me where I might be wrong in this situation. Show me where I have sinned, where I have wronged this person, so that I can go and I can confront their sin in a way that is, that is humble, that is, where I'm not being a hypocrite. Um, so our first thought should always, right, we should take the log out of, be to take the log out of our own eye in those situations. And this type of self-reflection is really only possible um, through Christ and when we are in Christ. That when we understand the gospel, when we understand that Jesus died for our sins, it frees us to be honest about our own, about our own sin. Right? We're no longer trying to hide um, our sin from ourselves or from others. We can, be, we can be honest because we know that Christ has forgiven us. That his death wipes away our sins so we can be honest about our shortcomings. It's also, this kind of self-reflection and this um, spiritual sight is also made possible by Christ simply because he's begun to work in our hearts. That if we're, if we're trusting in him for our salvation, if we're, um, if we're believers, then, then he's begun to work on our hearts. He's begun to shine light into those dark places. Um, he, you know, in order to begin to root out that sin, my wife and I just we are just moved into a new house, and it was quite dirty. And the, my least favorite words this week have been, "Oh, also let me show you this," because it always meant there was something else in our house that needed to be fixed or cleaned or something. Uh, but it, but it was also important because. It's only when we see the problem that we can begin to root it out. And so as Christ shines light into our hearts in order to begin to root out that sin, not just so we'll be aware of it, 
but so that we can begin, begin to change. And by God's grace, we, we do. We can, um, in ways that we don't always, aren't always aware of, Jesus begins to sh- shows us our sin and begins to, um, to sanctify us, to, to make us more like him. So in saving us from our sin, we see that Jesus strikes at the blinding nature of sin. But he also strikes at the, 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 the slave master nature of sin as well. That Jesus frees us from our sin. In verse 18, we see this um, in this, you know, that he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And later on, liberty to those who are oppressed. This word liberty that's that's used here, that the, ESV, it's, that the ESV translates as liberty, the Greek word there is actually has a, very, uh, has a range of meanings. And the most common one is forgiveness. So this is actually the only place in the New Testament where this word is used to mean anything other than forgiveness. The point here is that this liberty that they're experiencing is based on forgiveness. That God comes and he forgives our sins. He frees us from sin um, by Jesus' death on the cross in order to give us, show us grace and mercy. We also see this idea when we look at the context of this passage that Jesus um, was reading from. So I said a minute ago that Jesus did something weird when he read this passage. This is what basically he stops in the middle of a verse. So if you, if you want, you can turn with me to Isaiah 61. I'm going to flip back and forth a little bit, or you can just listen along. So the, Isaiah 61 actually reads this way. Oh, so it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Um, on down, proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stops right before that line about vengeance. Because what he's trying to say is that there will come a day for vengeance. There will come a day when God will bring justice on the earth, but it's not today. Today, I've come to preach forgiveness, grace, and the mercy of God. This was the part of the passage that Jesus fulfilled by his first coming, was the part about forgiveness, about freedom from our sins. Jesus' earthly ministry was centered on the forgiveness of sins. He came to free us from our sin through, through the forgiveness that he offered, through the forgiveness that was bought with his own death. But this concept of freedom, of, of liberty from our sin, uh, goes beyond just just forgiveness. And in fact, it strikes at the very heart of how we experience sin in our own lives. More often than not, slave or sin feels like a slave master. We feel like captives to the sin, to the desire, the sinful desires of our hearts. Uh, so I'm gonna read off a couple of things that I have said at different points in my life. Let me see if they sound familiar to y'all. The idea of this is just who I am. I guess I'll always struggle with this sin. Or maybe more um, with more grief would be why can't I stop acting this way? Those are all the language of captivity to sin. Those are the, 
this idea of why, like that I can't seem to change, right? Because I, we feel like we're captive to these sinful, these sinful patterns, these sinful desires. But the truth that this passage is teaching us is that Christ comes to free us from, this, um, from slavery to sin. And that if you are a believer, you are no longer captive to sin. If you're not a believer, you are 100% a slave to sin. Right? You are, if, when, we are, when we're not in, you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. And so if you're not a believer, you are a slave to sin. But if you're a believer, then Christ has freed you from those sinful patterns. Romans 6, um, 16 through 18 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul's point is that our salvation is not just a removal of guilt. We are also free from captivity to sin. We are free from those sinful desires. This is your greatest weapon in fighting sin, in fighting those, those pesky, resilient sins in your life. Right, it's, whether it's the more obvious um, enslaving sins of um, you know, pornography, eating disorders, drugs and alcohol, or even the subtly um, enslaving sins of greed, of selfishness, of, of anger. Right? This is your, the truth that you are no longer a slave to those things is your greatest weapon in fighting them. This has been, um, I have seen this firsthand in my life. This has been the single most helpful thing for me and my growth um, as a believer and in my sanctification and growing more like Christ has been this reminder, reminding myself that I'm not a slave to this, that I'm not a slave to the sinful desires of my heart. Whatever my behavior may indicate, I'm not a slave to those patterns. And that doesn't mean that it's quick or easy. Uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton uses the illustration of a rhinoceros. He says, um, if a rhinoceros were to enter this room right now, there is no denying he would have great power here, but I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. Um, his point is that if a rhinoceros were in this room, that rhinoceros would have zero authority, but it still had, has power. And sin has no authority in your life, but it still has residual power. Right? Sin is still a powerful force in all of our hearts. But by God's grace, as we, as we live um, in the reality that we are no longer captive to sin, we can begin to grow. We can begin to become, we can become more and more like Christ. So Jesus fulfills um, these promises of God to restore us spiritually, to take away the blinders from our eyes, to remove the shackles of slavery to sin. But we know also from Jesus' ministry that he began to fulfill the promise of God to restore us physically. And in doing so, he points us to the fact that he will one day fulfill the promise of a full redemption, a full restoration. Uh, we see this in the context of Isaiah 61, 
once again. Um, so um, in Isaiah 61, uh, the context of it is an, it's, an end, it's a prophecy of the end times. Let me, I'm going to read, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 60, verse 19. I'm going to read the last four verses of chapter 60 and the last four verses of 61. And just pay attention to kind of the, the, the end times language. The, the, we, you know, it, when we like to use the word eschatological, right, referring to end times. So listen to the eschatological language, meaning just things concerning uh, when Jesus comes back. So starting in verse 19, it says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Um, the language in this passage is very reminiscent of Rev the last couple of chapters of Revelation. This idea that there will be no more sun because God will be our light. That God will comfort those who mourn. Um, reminds us of the promise in Revelation that he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. That God promises in Isaiah to to restore the ruined cities, to repair the devastations, that he's going to make all things new. The point is that these passages here in Isaiah are dealing with, with the end times, with what's going to happen when Jesus returns. They're passages about what the Bible refers to as the last days, which is uh, kind of basically, you know, the idea being the last days are kind of the, um, the coming of the kingdom, that when the kingdom comes, the last days have begun. And what Jesus is saying by using these end times passages and applying them to himself, he's, trying, he's saying two things. The first is that the last days start now. Right? So we are in the last days right now because the last days began when Jesus came and they'll end when Jesus returns. Uh, theologians like to talk about uh, the already and the not yet, that the kingdom has already come, but it's not yet come in fullness. Uh, it's kind of like uh, trying to use that pregnancy, right? You you're already have a child, but you don't yet have a child because they're not out in the world, right? They're still in the womb. The kingdom is still in the womb. It's, it's come, but it's not yet come in fullness. And so Jesus is saying that uh, these 
he has begun the process of bringing these end times, these promises of restoration. He's begun the process of bringing them uh, to fulfillment. The second thing he says, so he's begun the process of bringing them to fulfillment. But he also says he's coming to give us, he's come to give us a taste of that full, full redemption that is coming in the future. Through, right, through Isaiah, God promised to bring about a full redemption for his people. And part of that full redemption is the removal of physical ailments, of oppression, of poverty. Those, those physical things that continue to plague us, right? The God promises not only to remove sin, but to remove all of the effects of our sin as well. And we, like I said a minute ago, we see this in Jesus' ministry. His own ministry reflects this reality because his, his main goal was to preach the kingdom, to preach himself, the good news of salvation from sin. But everywhere he went, we also see Jesus healing people, right? Feeding the 5,000. We see him show concern about people's physical needs. He cared uh, not just about our sin. Obviously, he cared about bringing forgiveness, but he also cares about meeting our physical needs. And as we look forward to the fullness, um, to this full redemption, um, if we really believe that God will fulfill um, the promise to end sickness, oppression, and suffering, then we'll begin to live differently. Right? So we believe that Jesus came and he, that God really cares about our physical, our physical problems, the physical brokenness that we experience. And he promises to bring a, a full redemption um, at the end of time. And so we should be living differently because of that. If, you are, if you're a kid and your dad promises you that he's going to be home at 5 o'clock to teach you how to ride your bike. When 5 o'clock rolls around, are you going to be up in your room doing homework? Absolutely not. You're going to be on the front porch with a bicycle next to you, um, waiting for your dad. We, li- you sh- we live differently if we, when we really believe a promise that someone gives us. And in this case, what it looks like to live out this promise of a full redemption, of a full restoration, is to begin the work of caring for the, um, the physical needs of those around us, right? To care for those who have been harmed uh, by, by the physical difficulties of life, whether it's poverty or sickness or, uh, or um, being in prison, right? So he, in the passage that Jesus reads from, he talks about bringing good news to the poor. God loves the poor. He talks about binding up or um, bringing liberty to the captives, right? He cares about those who are in prison. And finally, giving sight to the blind, that God loves and cares for those who are sick. And as uh, as we look forward to the full physical, spiritual, everything restoration that God is bringing, we should be involved um, in mercy ministries that love the poor, the imprisoned, the sick. God calls us um, to live in light of his promises. Right? Are you this morning, are you living as a free man or woman, or are you living as a captive? Are you living in light of God's 
full redemption and restoration that's coming at the end of time. Right? Let's, as, follow, as we follow Christ, let's look to these promises that God has given us and live in light of them. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, sending Jesus to, Lord, we thank you for the many promises that you give us, and we thank you for sending Jesus to, to answer those promises, Lord, that we know we kept assurance that whatever you promised to do will come to pass. And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you love us, that you, you remove our sin from us, you um, love us in those moments when we are, when we're, when we face um, issues of when money is short, when we're sick, Lord, you, you come alongside us and you love us. Help us to be your hands and feet to those around us, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.